Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. Hey, BTB buddies, I wanted to let you know that I have a Patreon page now so that you can support the show. Check out patreon.com forward slash BTBPC and check out the cool stuff you can get for as little as two bucks per month. You can also find the link in the show notes. Thanks, as always, for listening. Hey, everybody. I really enjoyed talking to Rick Roberts for this episode of the podcast. Make sure to check out Rick's Dry Bar special, Put Down the Sweet Tea, by downloading the Dry Bar app on the Apple or Google Play Store, whatever you call those, you can download the app. And then make sure you give that special a heart when you watch it because that helps Rick out. Also, Rick has the longest-running podcast about the art and business of comedy in the School of Laughs podcast. He actually started that in 2014. So if you like my show, I know you'll like his. So make sure to check that out. It's on all the apps. Just type in School of Laughs, and he's got great content. Now, here's my interview with Rick Roberts. My guest today grew up in the tobacco fields of Kentucky, not in the fields themselves, but around them. Went on to start stand-up comedy in the early 90s. He's got a dry bar special that is very good. Longtime host of the School of Laughs podcast, which is the granddaddy of all the comedy podcasts. You look back to when he started, it was 2014. Not many of the comedy-related uh, podcasts can say that, especially when you're talking about the business of stand-up comedy, writing bits and stuff like that. So it's it's the granddaddy of all of them. He's also the uh, resident warm-up comedian for uh, Huckabee on TBN and a lot of other things, but I don't want to make a real long introduction. Here is Rick Roberts. Hey there. How's it going, Rick? Scott? Thanks so much for uh, coming on the show. You've been one of the uh, longtime gets that I wanted to get, and we finally got ourselves together, so I appreciate that. You bet. I'm, I'm very gettable these days. I'm not doing it. <laughs> it, it is a little easier now. <laughs> <laughs> so what we do here at the beginning is uh, what I like to call the rapid round. So, Rick, we're going to do the rapid round here. I don't need to ask you where you're from because I already know that. You're from Kentucky. <laughs> Yes, sir. Grew up in the, uh, Kentucky, just outside of Lexington around here for you. I'm just going to go with nothing. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, in the heart of Kentucky. Tobacco, bourbon, the castle, you name it. Huh? Right there. I actually, I've got a, a day career and I'm in Carrollton, Kentucky and Shelbyville, Kentucky quite a bit. So oh, yeah. not far from you, stone's throw from where you were. Yep. So let's talk about comedy. Who were some of your influences when you were a kid? Who who was it that made you laugh and made you start thinking, ah, I might like to do this? Bill Cosby was huge when I was a kid, and mm -hmm. he actually performed at my dad's company Christmas party when I was like four or five or six, somewhere really young. Uh -huh. And so you know, I didn't really know then what I know now about comedy, but he yeah. It was a corporate gig for him. He did great. And at the mm -hmm. end, he handed out Christmas presents and stuff like that. I wish I had pictures. Um, but Bill Cosby was big. As I got a little bit older, 
Steve Martin was probably the first guy that blew me away. The mm. King Tut thing. When yeah. I heard it was funny, when I saw it on Saturday Night Live, it just it lit me up. And Dennis <laughs> Miller, as far as the way you can write tight jokes and smart jokes, I like that. Right. And then when I was senior in high school, moving on into college, Dice Clay was really big, and I just liked his pace. Mm-hmm. And, and, and those are four or five from the early ones that I can't remember. And of course, George Carlin, too. I, I got into him when I was in high school and his written bits that he would do for radio and for some of his projects like AM, FM, I just thought were incredible. And I'd memorize those things. Hippy Dippy Weatherman. That was, uh, yeah. I think it was before AM, FM, or was that on that album? Uh, you know, I can't remember exactly, but yeah. it was right it's the same the, I know it's in that era. Yeah, he was great. This is something I asked. It's kind of, it may be off the comedy thing, but it's something I'm interested in because this is what I like to talk to people about. What books are you reading, music you're listening to, magazine articles, podcasts? What's inspiring you these days that you could share with the audience? Not reading a whole lot besides doing some research now. I just put together a 15 part video series, taking lessons from the Andy Griffith Show and making those business lessons. Oh, and, and so I've read five, six different Andy Griffith show Mayberry books here in the past two months and uh-huh. really grinding hard on that. <laughs> and then other than that, I don't consume a lot. I, I try to produce a lot. I really, this COVID-19 shutdown has given me an opportunity to get some big projects going and completed. And so I, if this thing drags on really long, I might do the back half kind of reading and, and putting stuff in. But right now I'm trying to get stuff out. Uh-huh. Okay, great. Fantastic. Thinking about your favorite comedy album or Netflix special, what would you say, and I, I don't want, to, want you to cut it down to one, what would you say are your like top three favorite comedy albums or specials? Uh, you know, one of my favorite specials as far as just how well worth your time it is was Chris Rock's special from Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure the name of that one, but he, he came right out and for a solid hour or whatever it was, there wasn't 10 seconds where you just weren't laughing and yeah. thinking at the same time. And at that point, I thought this is probably the best special I've ever seen. I think he had it on a silver suit in that one, if you want to Google mm. it or look it up. But I, you know, I've been doing comedy for a while at that point, obviously, when I saw it. And I just appreciated the fact he didn't waste his time on stage trying to figure out where the joke was or trying to figure out what the audience liked. He came in and delivered what he thought was funny and he'd worked on for a year and it's phenomenal. Mm. It was off off the charts. Good. Other than that, I've watched the most recent Seinfeld special Mm -hmm. and he's still writing jokes. There's still laughs in there, but he just seems very dated now. You're in your sixties talking about pop tarts. I just feel like there's more on the table. Yeah. I, you know, I don't know if he knows how to write any different. So that's, I I think that's what you're going to get till he's done. (laughs) I I did like it though. It was, it was good. Yeah. He's there. He's doing his thing. Brian Regan. I like a lot. His live special he did on Comedy Central a few years back. It was slightly delayed, but it was live. I thought that was a great Mm -hmm. testament to how you can, how you can deliver on the spot and under all the restrictions that tv has brian regan had no problem doing that and it was cool seeing the live factors like walking a tightrope you can't go back and edit right they didn't laugh and put put laughs in there and it's a precursor to zoom shows (laughs) yeah yeah it's one of those things it's it's there and it is what it is yeah (laughs) 
Well, that's great. The The last thing I'd like to ask you is when you think about the first time you performed, I, I know you were in a troupe before you did stand-up, but the first time you got up and did stand-up, can you tell me what that was like? Yeah, I can give you a nutshell uh, of what it was, but the first time I went on stage, I didn't know it was a comedy night, and it was before I did the improv, so I went to a place to play guitar one Sunday night, and they said, you can sign up here. It's an open stage. They never mentioned the word comedy anywhere. So I signed up and it turned out it was a competition. It was an ongoing competition. The people with the most votes over the competition went towards the end of the show. It was my first time there. So I went first. So I saw no comedy. Nobody said the word comedy. It was not at a comedy club. They gave me five minutes. I played three songs and nobody claps. They're just staring. They're trying to figure out what's going on. Oh, I'm trying no. to figure out what's going on. And when I get done, the MC says, did you know tonight's a comedy open stage? And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> what is that? I've never heard of that before. Uh, and I've got a longer version of that story. It goes into the details on my podcast if somebody wants to look it up. But I had no idea that it was comedy. So I did five minutes, try to get out of there because I realized I was in the wrong place. A couple guys brought me back in and said, you get free food for going on stage. So uh-huh. I was hungry and broke. <laughs> watched, watched 20 comedians going up. And it got funnier as the night went on because those uh-huh. people had been voted funnier. And I said, I'm coming back here every Sunday till I figure this thing out. <laughs> that's that's really cool. One of the things I do is instead of just doing comedy open mics, I do the ones that are predominantly music because, it, first of all, if you can make them laugh, you can make anybody laugh because I didn't come here to see comedy. So I like to do that to stretch myself and see if I can connect with anybody. So that's turning that on its head. Yeah. Yeah. Anytime you can get a laugh where they don't expect it when they're one, it should be 10 times easier. So yeah. people always ask me, you know, what's the best open mic in town? I'm like the next one, you know, yeah. whatever the next one is get on stage. Cause they're not there to see you at, for a long time. So if you can win them over, that's half of the game at least. Uh huh. Have you ever done the, I'm sure you don't do too many open mics anymore, but have you ever done one at the Cobra East Nashville? Mm, haven't done that one. I think it's called the Cobra Room. I did that. We were in Nashville for, I don't know what it was for. We go to Nashville quite a bit. And we were, I did a, the mic there and it was okay. And I did one a couple of years ago and I know the place is closed since then. It was right, it was like right adjacent to downtown. And uh, that was a pretty good one too. And it looks like Nashville's got a pretty decent scene going on. Yeah, there's always open mics happening. There's some longer running ones. There's typically some that pop up for two or three months. So I'm a big fan. If if you're into open mics, to as soon as one starts, go do it because it's probably going to be gone in two or three months yeah. when you realize comics don't order a lot of expensive food and drink. So, yeah. <laughs> so don't wait till it gets good. Go in there and take advantage of it. While yeah, I'm no still doubt. <laughs> yeah, you got to go in and make it good. You've been one of the guys I wanted to get because, uh, mainly because of the School of Laughs podcast. And I, I wanted to dig into that first because it's every time you talk to a comic and you ask them what podcast they listen to, uh, School of Laughs and St- Let's Talk About Sets are the two that just oh, really? about everybody mentions. That's and great. tell me, because you were so early in on that, tell me what possessed you to start that podcast. Yeah, I know. I remember very clearly what it was. 2014, if you went back and looked at what was going on with gas prices in the country, gas was really high. Yeah. And I'd been teaching the live classes in Nashville on a pretty regular basis. And people were driving down. I had one lady drive down from Finley, Ohio to Nashville 
four, you know, four Mondays in a row. I had a guy that was flying in from Texas to take the classes. I had people all the time coming up from Alabama at, you know, Atlanta area, Kentucky. And I I was like, man, they're doubling the price of the class by (laughs) spending all this money on gas. Yeah. I should put together an online course so they can take it anywhere they want. And to let them know about the course, I thought I'd put out a podcast to show them my style of teaching and my way of talking about comedy so that they could you know, hear about it and go, okay, I can take the online course and get this kind of content. Or for the people where the, the 200 bucks was too much for them and they didn't have it in their budget, they could listen to the podcast and still learn stuff from me and other comics. It was the whole idea surrounding getting people to know about the online class, but also providing like a, a digital green room for comics who didn't have access to other comics. Mm-hmm. That's a great yeah. idea. And just because I'm a podcast geek, what did your first setup look like? Uh, same one I still use today. I've got a, oh. a Zoom H4N, which uh-huh. is around here somewhere. Uh, it's got two regular cabled microphone inputs, so I would set that up. And at first, when I rec- whenever I recorded what I call a fireside classroom, where I, after a class, people stick around and ask questions, I just have them pass around the extra microphone. And if I do it online now, I do it through Zoom Mm. nine times out of 10 and just take the audio from that. But you can spend a ton on podcast gear, but a Sure (laughs) SM58 microphone is what comics use on stage. That's what I use when I interview people. And it sounds great. You're going to bump down the or compress the sound so much anyway, you don't need to spend a lot on the front end. It's going to be turned into an MP3, which is a sample of a sample. Yeah. And uh, a lot of people talk to me about podcasting because before I started this one, I had done another one for five years. It was a local podcast and they always ask about gear and uh, that's the most important thing. Now I've spent some on gear just because it's easier for me. I can take it and I'm pretty much done with it right out of the shoot. So I've spent some on gear, but the important thing about podcasts is the content. It doesn't, as long as they can adjust the volume to hear everybody, then the content is king. Yeah. I find I use a tool called Alphonic. I don't know if you use that. I do that too. Yeah. <laughs> and I had some podcasts that were, that I couldn't use. They sat in on an SD card for two or three years till I found out about Alphonic. And yep. it, it basically brings all the audio to one stable level. So people aren't turning up and turning down and, yep. and tuning out. If, yeah. If that's could, a, that's one free. of the best tools out there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And you can do, I think you can do two hours free or something like that, two or three hours. Yeah. yeah. And it's the, the free stuff is that they do the same stuff as the paid stuff. And actually Buzzsprout, I'm hosting with Buzzsprout and they're using an Alphonic thing on their back end that you have to pay a little extra for. And I'm actually doing that. So I, in most cases, I can even skip the Alphonic. So that's cool. Yeah, it's great. On the podcast, I found that I learn, and and the reason why I do this podcast is to learn about stand-up comedy, but uh, I learn a lot from my guests. Do you have any guests that really stand out to you that you really didn't know that well before, but you really learned some stuff from them and maybe some lessons that you still use today? Yeah, you know what the fun thing is, is I'm in the speaker world as well as the comedy world. Mm -hmm. And so I've definitely learned from, I've learned from every guest. Sometimes I'll have a guest on stuff that's ancillary Uh, connected to comedy, whether it's the social media or marketing or networking and things like that. And I I learn a ton during those. The most recent kind of outside of stand-up interview that I had was with Steve Lowell. This is maybe five or six episodes ago, but 
he's a speaker and he's the head of the Canadian National Speakers Association. And he just had a billion, everything he said, I'm like, oh, I need to be doing that. Oh, I'm mm-hmm. glad I'm doing that. Oh, I'm glad I quit doing that. It mm-hmm. was reaffirming, but also insightful as far as the things I could implement. And then all the comics, it's fun when I talk to somebody I've known for a long time because there's, there's already a natural built-in cadence and we know how each other speaks and we know stories that we, we can just allude to and get the, the info out. Uh-huh. Then occasionally I'll talk to a comic that I've never met, but I've watched or heard or listened to and find their story. Everybody I learn something from, I typically put the nuggets that I learn into the show notes as bullet points so people that are looking to learn those things know that those are in the podcast. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and they're searchable now on the website. You can go to the little search bar and search any topic of comedy and find exactly what you're looking for. Oh, I may, I think I might've got a nugget here. So, uh, <laughs> I yeah, if you're not doing uh, detailed show notes of some kind, you're not as searchable on Google and those kinds of things. And a lot of my traffic definitely comes from people searching, uh-huh. you know, how to, how to do corporate comedy or how to, how to add funny to their speech or all those things we talk about. So it shows up in the search. Yeah. I, I need to put some more work into that. Hey, I already learned something. <laughs> yeah. I'll give you another, I can teach, I can talk as much about podcasting as we want because it's a, a common thing between us, but uh-huh. there's another tool that I use to transcribe the podcast and you get a certain amount of that for free uh-huh. and it's 95% accurate. It learns you over time. So the longer you use it, the more it gets things right. And I'll use that to go through and just, sometimes I'll do an interview and not put the podcast out for two months. So I'll go back and look at the transcript, highlight things I want to put in the show notes. And if I have my editor editing, I forward those notes to him. If I'm doing it, I can look at it and realize, Oh, I want to make sure I put that in. Oh, that's cool. What, so what do you use for that? I use it called happy scribe, S C R I B E. And the other is called otter. O T R. Okay. And so for comics who started maybe tuning out, cause they're not podcasters. Let me tell you how you can use otter for your own thing. It's brutal to listen to your open mic sets sometimes back on your phone, things like that. But you can Mm -hmm. upload your set to Otter as soon as you get done, have it transcribed. And when you get home or the next day, you can look at your set and review it without even hearing the audio if you don't want. And Uh just you can visibly see how many errs, ums, ahs, those likes that you have. And and you can self-critique and go, okay, that joke didn't work, not because it wasn't funny. It's It was surrounded by so much garbage they didn't know where the joke actually was. Uh-huh. So it can be a good writing tool. Yeah. Yeah. That's really cool. And the funny thing is, I think every, it seems like every comic right now is starting a podcast. There's a new one every day. So I think yeah. this will be good for anybody that's listening. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so um, thank you for giving me the info on the podcast. I really appreciate that because it's been something that I started listening to when I started comedy. And I've been doing stand-up for just under four years now. And I've taken a lot of good lessons from that, and I appreciate it. I bet. That's great. When you think about becoming a stand-up comic and becoming who you are as a stand-up com- comic, when do you feel that you finally said, okay, this is what I want to be. This is the type of comic I want to be. This is the type of material I want to do. When did you get a handle on that? And how long did it take you to get there? That's a good question. It's weird. When I first started, like I said, I didn't know I was getting into comedy, and then I did. And my first goal was just to be able to quit my day job. I Mm -hmm. felt if I could provide for myself, and it was just me. I was 20, early 20s, very few bills. I thought, if I can not go to work for somebody else, that's a victory. Mm. And so I hustled, hit as many open mics as I could till I could get 15 to 25 strong minutes to where I could MC 
open for people. And back, I started in Columbus, Ohio. There was nine to 10 open mics between Sunday and Wednesday. So three on Sunday, three on Monday. So you could have an idea for a joke Saturday. And by Wednesday, you've told it seven or eight times and you know if it's got legs or not. Yeah. So that helped me develop quickly. So my first goal was really just not to do something else. It wasn't really the best goal. To uh, My goal was not to be a great comedian. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was just not to have to work for somebody else. But then once I made the switch and got into comedy, which was within a year, I went full time. And a lot of that was because of, the, of an improv group that picked me up and took me on the road. But once I got in, I'm like, OK, I, I want to see. Yeah, I knew there's the, the three levels, basically the MC, the feature, the headline. Mm. I didn't really know much about corporate work at that point. But I'm like, all right, how long is it going to take me to move up to feature? Because if I could feature, then I feel like I'm I'm an actual comedian. And mm. MC is a skill set, and you use comedy to warm the crowd up. But as a feature, you have to hold them the whole time with comedy. So it took me probably five years to go from MC to feature, working pretty much every week, partly because they're – it took me a while to get good, partly because there was a huge log jam at that time in the early 90s of comics. There's, I'm sure there's more now, but there were at the time of really good quality comics a ton. Mm-hmm. So it was a war of attrition. You hoped that people that were featuring would get great so they could move to the headline spot and free up that feature spot. Yeah. But the reality was a lot of people could feature and sometimes headline. And once they started headline, they're like, I'm never going to feature again. And then two years later, like, I'm not getting any work because I only headline three weeks. Yeah. <laughs> but then you've got people that could headline featuring and the whole time you're trying to bump up against that ceiling. Yeah. And then another three to four years to go from featuring to headline. So, you know, the goal was always to get better once I got into that MC spot. But as far as realizing that this is what I'm going to do and how I really approach it, it wasn't until I started headlining that it became apparent I was very clean. And there was one December where I worked at the Star Dome in Birmingham three weeks in a row, first three weeks of December. And all they were doing was selling the club out to different corporate groups who were coming in, 150 people in this section, 200 people in this section. Uh, During the afternoons, after lunch, they would have some corporate groups come in. And I did about, I don't know how many groups total, but over the three weeks, there wasn't a day where there wasn't a corporate group in the audience or just going to a corporate event. Mm -hmm. And I got paid the same as if I was featuring for, for the each week, plus a little bonus money for the individual corporates. And that's where I realized, oh, I just gave, not that I gave away my comedy for free, basically, but he didn't have to go hire a comedian to do a corporate event because I was already at the club. Yeah, yeah. And so I just did the math <laughs> on it. I'm like, if I would have just booked three corporate events in December, I would have made more than those 20 days I was grinding it out at the Stardome. Mm-hmm. And so the next December, and this was probably the year 2000, 2001. I said, I'm not going to book any club events in, in December and see how many corporate events I get. And I booked, I think it was 26 Christmas parties that year. Wow. And I'm like, okay, this is what I should be doing. And then other mm-hmm. corporate comics were like, man, I see you're doing a lot of corporate events in, in December, but there's corporate events every month of the year. You should try to do more throughout the year and at that point, I just got married, didn't want to be on the road as much, so made that transition. And uh-huh. that's where I really felt like this is where I belong in the comedy world. I love doing comedy clubs. It's fun. But the return for your time and after doing comedy for 10 or 12 years is pretty minimal. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I've, for, for uh, most of us, there's a few that are great club comics and they can draw, but it, that wasn't the case for me. I've had uh, another corporate comic on the show, Greg Schwem from Chicago, mm-hmm. that it's the same thing for him, especially when you have a family. You First of all, you fly to uh, wherever the party is or the corporate event, and then you usually fly back later that day, so you don't even have to stay the night on a lot of them. And the ones you do, it's one night in your home and you're not gone all weekend. You can see the kids when they're awake and it's pretty cool. Yeah. There's a lot more benefits. A lot of comics feel they got to trade away their, their soul to do corporate events. But for me, I was just doing clean comedy everywhere. So Mm. it just made more sense to go where they wanted it. And instead of 300 people in the audience and maybe a third wanted clean comedy and two thirds was already blitzed or whatever. Uh huh. Yeah. If, if you go to a corporate event where they expect it to be clean and nobody's blitzed, you know what? The jokes work just as good, if not better, because they're, mm. they're awake, they're intelligent, and they're getting it. But it's not for everybody, but it certainly was for me. Let, let's talk about a couple things, because you, you brought up two things. And the last thing I want to talk about first, it's expectations of an audience, whether it be regional expectations or clean or dirty type expectations. When... Let's think about the club atmosphere. And in, in some clubs, they expect the comedian to be dirty. They expect them to get into subject matter, sexual subject matter, or whatever. And here comes Rick Roberts, who works clean. Do you have any kind of a method to get them on your side uh, and say, hey, I'm the clean guy, so you're just going to have to, you're, you're going to have to suffer through this 40 minutes. You might as well <laughs> laugh. <laughs> There was definitely times where if the booking wasn't correct, the audience's expectations were set at a different level. So there there were times where I was the only clean comic and I was headlining and the two in front of me were filthy. So the audience naturally, if they don't know me, naturally expect the next guy to be doing the same thing. Yeah. But what I found was if you take the stage, if you command the stage when you take it, I always gave credit to the other comics when I took the stage, keep it going for those guys. But I would also say they do something I can't do or that I don't do. And I'm glad you enjoyed what they did. And then I would just get into my set. I wouldn't necessarily say I was clean. If they looked at the building, they knew I was clean. Mm -hmm. Maybe they didn't know until they got there that I was going to be the clean guy. But the thing is connection. If you connect with the audience, it doesn't matter if you're clean or dirty because they're connecting with you. So it took me a while to figure that out, that if I, I connected on a personal level or where they were in life or... At the very least, we're all broke. We're all, we all hate our boss. Find things that are a common connection, just like you would in a conversation with a stranger. And then once you had them there, they forgot that you're being clean. You're just being funny. So the energy in the room sometimes would change because the the dirty comics would take them to a certain place. Mm -hmm. But within five to seven minutes, you've washed that and you're, you're right where you need to be. That's great. I, and I ask this because I work clean myself and I tend to work where everybody else doesn't. And I, I do have methods to get them on my side, especially if it's a young audience, but it's, it's different. And and it does take some effort, more effort than just doing your act. Sometimes you really, I think the connection thing you said is very relevant there. Yeah. Connecting through, you know, emotion, common situations, those kinds of things. It's just the key. And a lot of times it, just referencing something that happened earlier in the show or before the show even started, just to let them know that you are aware of where you're at and what the surroundings are like and what the audience is like. Uh, that goes a long way. Some mm-hmm. comics stay in the green room, don't even watch the re- other comics. They pop on stage and they don't know the temperature of the room at all. But yeah. if, if you're watching the other comics, you don't have to be 
engrossed with them, but if you're aware of what's going on and what yeah. the crowd's reacting to, you can jump on stage and tap into something somebody was talking about earlier or a situation that happened in the showroom and, and instantly unite with the audience. And they mm-hmm. know that you're in the moment. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And back when you were talking about understanding when doing open mics and understanding when a joke has legs as a teacher and after listening to your podcast, I understand that you are a good listener and you're a good observer. I've asked this question of a lot of comics and I, I get different answers and sometimes I don't get an answer, but do you have any method that you can impart to people to say, okay, this is when I know my joke has legs and I can do something with it. Or this is when I need to walk away from this joke. Like how many times you have to say what response you need to get. Uh, that's something that seems to be a question that everybody has, but nobody seems to be able to answer it to my satisfaction. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a really good question because if, if you don't have a, a consistent way of measuring what you're doing, where everything passes through the same measure, the same system, then it's going to be hit and miss all the time. Early on, didn't really have a, a plan. Before I learned enough to, to teach comedy, I had no idea what I was doing. And I would just do what worked over and over again. And if it didn't work, I'd just quit. But when I got to where I could actually learn how to write and teach writing, Basically, once I have a joke on paper that I, I think is solid, that it's it's clutter-free, it, 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 the punchline is clear, the intention of the joke is clear, the target of the joke is clear, I'll take it to the stage. And if it works once, it's definitely going to be told again. I try to get it three out of five in the early stages. Mm-hmm. And if it's doing that, it's going into the, the regular show, not just the open mic or the warm-up that goes into my regular show. And to stay in the regular show, it's got to be 10 out of 10. The thing is... It can take a while to get 10 shows. So you might have told the joke great for three times in a row. You did three shows in one week and then you got a week or two off or a month because of the pandemic or whatever. So (laughs) you have to remember how you told it. And that's why recording your shows is so key. If you record it, you can hear how you told it when it got the best laugh. And if you ever stray from it or you forget, you can go back to that recording. Mm -hmm. Or or just if you have that transcription, you know exactly how how you wrote it. So you have to give the joke enough focus where it's told the same way when it worked each time. Right. You can have different audiences. If you do 10 different shows, you get 10 different audiences. If you have a joke that works with all 10 audiences, that joke's going to work on TV. That's going to work when you record your CD. It's going to re- work when you do an audition for a showcase or for a festival. It's one of your keepers. Mm-hmm. That's great. Very good advice. And that goes into my question about how you write, because you seem pretty deliberate about your writing. Do you have a set time of day that you write? Do you want to write a certain amount each day? What What's your writing style like? This is an interesting time because I've had more time than ever to write since March. You know, March 14th was my last event. I've had a couple little things, but not, I'm not gone for weeks at a time. So I do now have a very structured schedule where uh, I'm fortunate if I can sleep in, get up when I get up, it's usually 8, 8.30. Mm-hmm have breakfast, cup of coffee out on the patio. It stays cool outside now till about 11. So I go out there with my cup of coffee. I start each month off with a 70 page. I got one right here. Just a basic 70 page spiral bound like mm-hmm. you buy for a kid at school. Yeah. Each month starts with that. I, I tend to write two or three pages a day. I, I pick a topic. I might brainstorm all three pages. I might try to get right into the jokes right away. I might go back to look at something I wrote 
five days ago as an idea, then flesh it out. But each day, spend enough time in there to to work out the material. Might take one or two days in the mornings off to go exercise instead. But at least five times a week, writing for what turns out to be about two hours usually. And some days the focus is let's just write and see where it goes. Other days is, oh, I've got this idea. Let's see how deep I can get into it. Mm -hmm. And for those of people that hit roadblocks and writer's block, you can always take a joke, one that's 50-50 on stage, and ask yourself, why is this joke not working? And break each part of it down. There's there's nothing more frustrating than, than having a joke that works half the time and not knowing why. But the more frustrating thing is letting it happen over and over again. And it's, yeah. it's not fair to you or the audience. So critiquing your own work, you can always make things better. So mm-hmm. there's no reason to have nothing to write about. You've got a, a joke that, I, and I don't like to break out break down sets, but you've got a joke that really appealed to me because if you look at the joke, it's low-hanging fruit. It's a joke that anybody could do, but the way you did it was very unique to you And I don't think anybody else could have wrote it that way. And everybody talks about finding your voice and being unique, but sometimes you can take subject matter that a lot of people are doing and make it your own and not be like that. So the the joke is Hickman when you're talking about superheroes. So I I think a lot of people could uh, say, yeah, we need a, we need a Southern superhero named Hickman, but you go into faster than a foreclosure can, leap across a double wide he wears a leonard skinner shirt for a cape instead of a batmobile he's got an el camino with an eight track what you put in there made it just a really excellent joke and and you can tell by the video you got great laughs from it tell me how you built that joke yeah that's that's great i'm glad you picked that one because i can remember very vividly how the whole joke came across (laughs) It originated one week when I was working in Des Moines, Iowa at the Funny Bone. There's a intersection, at least at the time, there was an intersection close to the club. I'm not sure if the club has moved or shut down, but uh, it was called Merle Hay Highway and Hickman Boulevard. <laughs> and I saw that driving in the first day. So that night I just said, hey, uh, you've got some great street names here. Merle Hay Highway and Hickman Boulevard. That sounds like a superhero duo. <laughs> Earl Hay and Hickman. Uh. <laughs> and it, it got a little laugh. And I'm like, maybe that's got something to it. So the next day, you got 24 hours to kill. So I sit there in the condo and I'm like, okay, if there was a superhero called Hickman, let's just work with Hickman, forget Merle Hay, what would his attributes be? And so I just wrote down everything I knew about superheroes, which is basically, I'm not a Comic Con guy, so I know about Batman, Superman, that's about it. Uh-huh. The theme to Batman always showed him swinging from building to building. With Superman, he was from a farm, so I thought that was kind of neat. But he, faster than a speeding bullet, able to leap a double wide in a single bound. Uh-huh. I thought, I'll, I'll take those things. So faster than a foreclosure. Yeah. I, I just did it. And, and the format for this joke, for the comedy folks, the nerds that are listening, it's, a, it's called a parody format. So what I did was I took everything we know about superheroes, mm-hmm. changed it, and parodied it to everything a country superhero would be. Mm. And then the key to it, and you mentioned it up front, is why am I telling this joke? How do you put yourself into the joke? Mm -hmm. So a lot of comics can tell great jokes, but you don't know anything about them. And you're asking, like Seinfeld, he's talking about Pop-Tarts. Why am I interested in him talking about Pop-Tarts? There's zero reason for it. Mm -hmm. He's not really putting himself into the joke. He's putting his writing skills into the joke. 
but there's no reason that he, he should be eating pop tarts with the billion dollars he has, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so with Hickman, it was very simple. How do I get into this joke? So what I said is, uh, there's a lot of superhero movies out right now. I'm from the farm. I can never relate to superheroes because they were in the city. So that mm. puts me in the joke. I wish there was a country superhero. There's the, the premise, and the mm. setup is Hickman. And then you go right into it. So it has all the things that you need. It, it needs a structure. I think there's seven joke structures that are most common. The parody is one. It has all the setup and punchlines and taglines a joke would have. But the key is it's relevant to me because I let the audience know why I'm talking about this subject. Mm. I, yeah, I, I was, I, I look at that and I, I look at all the comics that I interview and I try to find uh, something that just really strikes a chord with me. And that one, just uh, the tags you had on that joke just rolled so effortlessly. And I I know you'd said it a few times before you did it, but I think, was that on your dry bar? I think they kept that one in. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and the crowd was just totally with you on it. I, and it was just like laugh and when you talk about last per minute, you must have killed it on that one. Yeah, that was one of those that everything fell in line really quickly. And what I like about that, that's a 10 out of 10 joke. It works everywhere. Utah, not a lot of farmers in Utah. Yeah. But I didn't ask how many farmers are here because I'm going to tell you a joke about uh, my farming experience. I just told them who I was and the joke was clear enough where they could come along with it. So mm-hmm. that's another thing is you, you don't want to always be asking the audience permission to tell a joke. And we hear that so much with comics. How many married people out there? Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You're yeah. going to tell a joke about being married anyway. Yeah. Just get to the joke. You know, yeah. Why waste seven to 10 seconds uh-huh. just to hear people clap that you're never going to see again? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and we all fall into that habit. I'm not exclu- you know, excluded from that. I have a, an improv background, so I want to interact with the audience, but it's not necessary to, to ask so many questions. Mm-hmm. So when you talk about interacting with the audience, do you any crowd work? Do you do any crowd work at all when you're doing clubs or corporate events? Yeah, it depends on the audience and what they hired me for and my length of time in the performance. So mm-hmm. if it's a shorter, some, some corporate events are sets of 30 minutes. And I feel at that point, your job, especially if you work with other comedians. So let's just break that down for a second. So crowd work, I think the MC should do a little bit of crowd work to get them to one spot and then do comedy. Mm-hmm. And then if the feature is doing any crowd work, uh, you need to be respectful to the headliner before you do that. So if the headliner does a lot of crowd work, then as the feature, I wouldn't do any mm-hmm. because it's just, it's the whole night's going to be, let's talk about the crowd and, and people who came to see actual comedy and jokes are going to be maybe left a little wanting more. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also if, if your headliner doesn't do crowd work and that's all you do, the crowd may start interacting with the headliner when that's not what the headliner wants. Yeah. So in the role of a three person show, I think it, you should be conscientious of that and be respectful. But in a corporate situation or wherever I'm a, the only comic, I'll do enough up front to let them know it's time to stop. Just like a regular club, corporate events are the same. People are talking, finishing conversations. Sometimes they're finishing a meal or a drink. I do a few things up front to address them, to say, hey, I'm here and you're here. We're all in the same space. And that lets people know the show has started. But as soon as I feel like they're all listening, boom, it's straight into the show. Mm-hmm. And then there's parts I have, I call them exit points in different jokes. If I want to include the crowd, if it, they seem really fun and I can just, just tell by body language, they're really into it, or there's particular members that are really into it in the crowd. I've got exit points in jokes to include people. And I know how to, to do that and get back into the joke, whether they play along great or 
fall flat in the first couple of you know, uh-huh. questions and answers, I can come back to it. I love doing crowd work because that's where you find that sometimes where you find a joke that works for every crowd from there on out, just a line you say during crowd work. Right. Um, but I also like to make the crowd by the end of a corporate event, I want somebody in the crowd to be the star of the show. And I want the audience to remember them more than me. So there's things I'll do specifically at the end of the show to highlight somebody else and to give them this kind of the spotlight. And so the next year at work or until the next party, they're the hero. If I facilitated that, I feel my job is well done, but it's not necessary for me to feel like, uh, I was the funniest guy on stage at night. If I could find somebody in the audience that the the corporate people love or somebody in their group that they know and they love and I can make them the star, pff, that's really the service I provide mm-hmm. you know, as a comedian. It's not about me anymore. The jokes are about me, but the jokes reflect your life. And the reason you're watching is because you can connect with all those little points. What you said about the feature not doing crowd work it's first time i've heard that uh so that's one of them i wrote down for my little diary i keep a little diary of my podcast stuff so that i don't forget it because it's really hard to listen back to your own voice for an hour so (laughs) i get it totally and i'll tell you what and here's if i could go back in time and give myself a piece of advice that is based on that crowd work uh, mentality is when you're on a show the most important thing you can do is play the role in that show to a hundred percent and not destroy the show for your own personal good. Every comic wants to move up the ranks. So when you're emceeing, you want to be funnier than the feature. And sometimes comics take some shortcuts and some cheap ways of doing that to sabotage the features act and not set them up correctly. Mm -hmm. And if the crowd walks out and they say two, two of those three comics were great or one of those three was great. You failed horribly. The whole show should be great. The yeah. booking agent or the club booker should put together a great show. But you want the whole thing to go well. When you're featuring, and I know because I was in the same spot, you want to blow that headliner off the stage. And you know what? You can sometimes do that because you've got 25 to 30 minutes when the crowd is not getting drinks, not paying checks. They've already warmed up, and you mm. don't have to close out the show and, and be uh, funnier than everybody else has been for the whole time. But that comes back to bite you. A big time when you get to headline and people are doing that to you, you realize, oh, they're not a team player either, but I can't ask them to play along now because I didn't when I was moving up those first two spots. Yeah, yeah. The the comics that did the most for me throughout the club years especially were comics where I did the role of the show and made the whole show work. Um, comics who could have helped me that I would try to burn off the stage never helped me at all because they're like, that guy doesn't even know how to work long ago, you know? You're a great feature, but I can't use you anymore because you're not doing what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to set up the headliner. Right. And so it's the mentality of a comic is very brutal. You want to destroy and you want to kill and you want to crush. <laughs> yeah. But if you just did your job, more people would want to bring you along to feature for them. You'd have bigger opportunities and you'd move up the ranks a lot quicker if you understood the role better. I don't think anybody, very few people share that information because they feel like nobody did it for me. I'm not going to do it for them. Uh-huh. That, oh, that is fantastic. And as a consumer of comedy, I've seen a lot of these three-person shows, and after having performed it, you really get a feel of a good synergy. When there's a good synergy from beginning to end, you lo- just like you said, you love everybody. Everybody did a great job. But if one of them, if, the, if just one of them uh, goes out of bounds or isn't within the rhythm of the show that kind of messes up the whole night for you as a consumer of comedy. 
Yeah, if you're in the audience and it seems like the three comics work together all the time and that this is a this particular three-act show goes everywhere together, then those comics have done their job. If mm-hmm. if you walk away going, man, that was three odd pair, <laughs> three odd people to have together. That show was very discombobulated and choppy. Then the, either the booking agent or the comics or all all parties involved didn't do their job. Right. So the comedy club show should be a product that from the opening line to the thank you good night should flow and have rhythm. And when it doesn't, everybody feels a little bit out of place. The mm-hmm. comics, the, the owner of the club, the wait staff can feel it in the room and the oh, comedy's yeah. going up and down and sideways. And why not make that night great? Yeah. Yeah. Very good stuff. The next thing I want to talk about is totally not really comedy related. So we're in a time here where obviously our physical and our mental health could really go downhill. And you are somebody, I'm friends with you on Facebook. You seem um, to have a sense of urgency about your own physical and mental health, about getting outside, riding your bike, doing stuff with your kids. And comics tend to be indoor cats. They, a lot of them spend all their time writing, watching superhero movies and stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit about the benefits of just getting outside to get your mental health on straight and your, and also your physical health? Yeah. It's again, I'm, I'm, I'm very thankful for this time in history. I'm, I'm, Obviously, I don't wish anybody to get sick or hospitalized. And I know multiple people now who've lost their parents or somebody in the family because of this. Mm-hmm. But here's what it's done. It's given you a chance to reset what was out of balance. And the one thing immediately that I had in surplus that I didn't have before was time. Mm-hmm. And the thing that was taken away from me was stage stage time and gigs initially, mm-hmm. especially. And it just worked out to where I just decided I'm going to get back Initially, I wanted to get back to where I could run. I hadn't run in 15 years, probably. Mm-hmm. And so I went out and I ran and I got, I went for, I hobble a 16 minute mile all the way down to where I was in the high sixes before I got this thing called plantar fasciitis, which kind of messes up your heel and your arch. I, I'm with, and, it. I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah. I got so it then too, I, yeah. I transitioned over to hitting the bicycle. And again, just having an old mountain bike that sat around for 20 years to, to doing 30, 35 miles in a couple of hours, the, the focus for me was get healthy in my mind, which was immediately going outside and unplugging. Gosh, the beginning of this thing, I think we're all watching way too much TV and mm-hmm. social media. And some people definitely still are. And I didn't see those people getting better at all. In fact, they were going down some, some rabbit holes uh, pretty quick with uh-huh. conspiracy theories and all these other things. And, and you can get caught up in all that, which uh, doesn't truly affect you. Or you can go outside, get healthy. The one thing that's true, no matter how anybody wants to phrase it, is your immune system is a big factor in how you fight off this disease and all diseases and all health. Right. Uh, your mental health, if you just keep putting garbage and confusion and anger and, and bad news in, you're going to feel horrible. Mm-hmm. And if you wake up and pull out your phone and start going right to the news sources and hearing about death all day long, you know, that's self-imposed. You yeah. can, as George Carlin said, there's a knob, turn it. You yeah. know? <laughs> so I make it a point every day to get outside, even though it's sometimes it's in the hundreds with the humidity and stuff yeah. down here, I'll hop on the bike. I put on some music. I go for a ride. Sometimes I'll start with an idea for a joke and I'll ride for 20 miles and just think about that joke. Mm-hmm. And it's just like driving a car after a certain point in the journey. Although, 
riding the bike, you got to be a little bit more alert, I think, than even driving because there's I almost hit a deer the, the yeah. other day. <laughs> and you got to be aware of your surroundings and other people. But I can let something simmer on the back burner while I'm riding the bike and really think about it for two hours. Yeah. When do we have that time when you're doing full speed ahead gigs, driving to gigs and yeah. and traveling and you're tired and you got to get a nap before the show? There's so many things that can take you out of your element. So again, I was just looking at this time in history as, as saying, how can I get super healthy? I, I didn't even know what my heart rate was four months ago. Now mm-hmm. I know within five beats per minute what it should be when I'm resting. Just all these different things when I'm exercising. And I just feel 10 times better. Mm-hmm. And I sleep better. So when I wake up, I'm more well-rested. And what's my morning routine? Riding. So it, all that sets the stage for the next day of being in a good frame of mind to create so that when this pandemic is neutralized or at least in check we're we're flowing again and traveling again there's no reason not to have a new hour of material that's fresh and more relevant than mm-hmm. when this thing brought us to our knees in, in march so that's been the goal is by march of next year to have a new hour to to work on stuff about the virus and definitely material that's not about the virus but just dig into all that stuff while there's time aplenty and then i might right. even seriously take a look at how much i want to travel when this thing gets back to, to a green light. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm like everybody else. This is what I do for a living. So I want to take as many gigs as I can. And in a way that's been, that was a great mindset because it gave me some buffer during these downtimes. Mm-hmm. But once things kick up, I don't know if I'm going to necessarily want to travel. There's more opportunities here than anywhere as much as anywhere else. So the focus on marketing has been shifting towards more local, all kinds of things during this downtime. But mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm glad anybody that's listening that doesn't think they can get out and exercise, just baby steps. Like Bill Murray would say, baby steps. You just walk for 10 minutes, and then eventually yeah. you'll be tired of walking. Jog up to that mailbox, yeah. and then I'm going to rest. I'm going to jog between these two mailboxes. Pretty soon you're doing a whole street. Pretty soon you're dropping minutes off your mile time, and your body's thanking you for it. Yeah, and it's funny. I In, in my past existence, I was... Uh, I was a 300 pounder. I'm six, five. So 300 pounds isn't as bad, but it's still bad. And I lost a whole bunch of weight. I kept it off. And we, my wife and I joined the gym, I think it was October of last year. And we were hitting it five days a week at least and doing a lot of stuff. I was feeling really good. The pandemic hit. And at the beginning of it, I didn't do anything. I, I watched TV and sat on the couch. I started gaining weight, started feeling bad. And then I said, okay, enough of this. I canceled direct TV. We haven't had TV on for more than 20 minutes for the last three weeks, I think. And I said, every day I'm going to do my three and a half mile fast walk. And I did it right before we, we got on instead of a lunch hour, I do that. And I go about four miles an hour and sweat and feel good clear my head. And then my wife and I exercise together when she gets home. So I get at least two good bouts of exercising and I can't tell you how much better I feel. I've got more energy. The weight all came off that I started gaining and I just, I feel like a new person. Yeah, that's great. That's excellent. You can, there's so many things you can do for yourself that people don't do. Mm -hmm. And, and then they expect all the gap and the things they can't do to be provided by somebody else. And it's, if you're not putting forth any effort to, to get better health mentally or physically, and it, they're tied together. I don't think you could be yeah. healthy one way and, and not benefit from the other. Right. But it, it doesn't, you know, the first few months, I'll be honest with you, jogging and running, it, it, it was work and I had sore <laughs> muscles and 
you know, my body was like, what's going on, 51-year-old man? Yeah. <laughs> but when you get past that point, oh, it's so exciting. And even during yeah. those struggles, you notice you know, improvement daily and weekly. Yeah. And just the momentum of that, it builds your confidence up to take on other tasks. You're more enjoyable to be around. So more people ask you to do stuff. There's just a million great things. And yeah. you can eat a lot when you're exercising. Yeah. Your calories. <laughs> it's uh, on a day where, like the other day, I went for a, a 30 mile bike ride. I lost six pounds on that bike. Yeah. <laughs> so I had no problem putting some food in my mouth when I got home. And yeah. I enjoyed yeah. every bit of it. Yeah, I we we're back to buying Oreos since we're both yeah. doing so well, and I don't mind having a couple now because it's uh it's fine. Yeah, double stuff, my man. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's great, and I really wanted to tackle that subject because in the world of comedy, we it's not a happy time for a lot of comics, and you have to understand what you can control. And one of the things you can control is your own physical and mental health and getting out there and, and trying to make that better. And like you said, a little bit better every time and, and decrease that mile time and all that, you know, that, that makes a world of difference. And I, I was a couple of weeks feeling down the dumps and gaining the weight back and I recognized it and fixed it. And, you know, that's really all you need to do. Yeah. The great thing with walking when you first start is you know, I knew that I didn't want to jump headlong into it at the beginning because mm-hmm. I had done that before and set myself back further than, than I advanced. Yeah. So the, the first three weeks I said, I'm just going to walk and I, I would download a, po- a podcast before each walk. And I like to learn stuff that I don't know. So I was always listening to things like how this is built yeah. or if it's around social media, there's a great one called social marketing, social media marketing world. They mm-hmm. put out a podcast. It's really good. Pat Flynn's really good. You know, there's interviews with inventors and entrepreneurs that you can get into, and every single one you learn something from. Mm-hmm. So I would walk until I had a nugget. You yeah. know, if, if I had another podcast, I would just keep walking. But yeah, <laughs> you, know, you you can gamify at the beginning to get your body into it, but be be feeding your head and be taking the weight off at the same time. Yeah, yeah. I, I do something very similar. I Sometimes I do music, but most of the time it's a podcast. And, and oh. the, I feel like I go faster when I'm doing a podcast for some reason. I think it's because I'm not thinking about the next song or stopping uh-huh. and changing my Spotify. It, I definitely go faster. I did want to uh, broach a subject. We've been talking for a while, but I did want to broach a subject. Uh, you've been uh, not only a pioneer in the podcast, but you started the online classes a little bit before a lot of the folks have done them. Can you tell me a little bit about what your online class is like and what a student can expect from that? Oh, sure. And thanks for asking. So I've got two different courses that are up. The first is a straight ahead comedy writing class. And what I did is I took the elements of the live writing class, got rid of stuff that wouldn't translate over the internet and added things that did. And basically take you from, if you've never done comedy before, you can start at the very first element and go all the way through the lessons and and learn the structure of the joke, learn to edit the joke, learn to create material, learn to create freely before you edit, all these different things to get you in the mindset of a comedian. If you're already a comic, what this class does for some folks that have, t- I've had people that have been doing comedy for 20 years take the class and like, oh, geez, I didn't know the thing in the second video. I should have been. Yeah. So it will highlight some things that you didn't know. Uh, and of course, you would know things that I don't know. So it's that, that sharing that knowledge back and forth. It's mm-hmm. not that I'm the only guy that can teach it, but. I'll, I'll definitely highlight some things you probably weren't thinking about to help make the process of creating material more fun and easier so that you do it more often and have better results. 
And so that writing class, there's the same class, but there's three tiers to it. The first tier is you take it, it's self-paced. There's no interaction for me. Maybe you just want to kick the tires and see if comedy is for you or enough about comedy where you don't need feedback from another professional. The second level is you, you take the class and there's feedback on the different homework assignments. So you create it, email it to me. I show you how to move words around, eliminate things, get more clear. And then with each joke, give you ideas of where you can take it from here. Because if a joke works, there's probably more meat, you know, more chicken on the bone. I like to say there's not just one little wing ding. You got a whole bucket of chicken there. So here's some other ideas for where you can take it. Uh-huh. And then also how you can structure all these random jokes into a set. And so the second level gives you feedback on all those things. The third level is all of that. Plus you get some online coaching, you get some video review and, and you get more time with me on an individual basis to take what you've done. You've got feedback from an audience on, but you still want to tweak it a little bit further. Mm-hmm. And so the price points go up at each level, but it's all, I wanted to make it affordable for each person on the journey, wherever they're at, and then also give them more time at each level for their money, for a better value to get more specific with them. Mm-hmm. So that's the online writing course. The second course that I have is, is brand It's this year brand new, but it's geared towards people who already speak. They may not be a comedian, but somebody who speaks to an audience where I call it teachers, preachers, trainers, speakers, anybody who wants to make their content funnier. Like they've got stuff. They've got basically got, an hour of setup, but not enough punchline in there. Mm-hmm. And so this is called the, the master laughter class. And it is extremely thorough. It combines direct to you lessons on the computer screen with live sessions. We did at the live master laughter class this January here in Nashville. So you're seeing the process with a group and you're also getting the process delivered to you directly. And that includes feedback and that includes online coaching and that includes it includes a mini version of the writing class that I just talked about. So it it gives you a highlight of all those things inside that class. And it gives you the, the, the seven most effective joke structures for speakers. It also gives you a whole section on how you can take one joke and it can be, or or a better way to say is a joke can work anywhere in your show, but it's going to work best somewhere. Mm -hmm. And so for speakers, uh, we can punch up the beginning of your program, the end of your program, very specific targeted spots in between. And if you already have material, we can look at that and go, oh, here's a spot where you use this joke writing technique and this type of approach, and it generates a laugh every single time. And I'm fired up about all those classes, but the Master Laughter class has a value to somebody that's already speaking and wants to make it better. And the results of that class, the people that took it, uh, it was eye-opening for me to see how much they got out of it, uh-huh. but also how they still incorporate it today. And seeing the results of that class play out in their video demos, the stuff that they get work from, now that they have funny stuff in that demo, they're getting more gigs. It's very rewarding. So I sat through so many webinars in the last few months, and if there was some humor there, it would have been nice. (laughs) That's the key to all of it. And and both of these classes are fun because we're studying comics. We're studying some of my own jokes. We're studying some jokes of my friends who have appeared on Letterman in different places. So we're seeing it at different levels. Uh Uh-huh. So you're enjoying that part of it, but then we break it down nerdy like we do uh, and show how you can apply it. It's If you're into comedy at all, it's fun. I think people, a couple of people that aren't, that don't even want to learn how to do comedy for a comedy sake, but they just want to see what the process is like to yeah. understand how to be an artist. They've taken the classes and got some stuff out of it too. So a lot, of, a lot of fun. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I've heard good things about your courses, and it, it may be on my bucket list to actually go through and take one because I, I, I don't have any formal uh, education in comedy. Oh, you would love just the structure of it and having deadlines. Oh, yeah. That, that's the thing. I, I've got a phrase, deadlines makes headlines. And yeah. If you don't have deadlines for things, they don't get done. So mm. the accountability factor with an online class, with especially if you're interacting, I wish I'd have had it when I started, man. Yeah. That's all I can say. I yeah. really do. Yeah, and you don't have as much accountability now because you don't have a show coming up that you have to get ready for so much, and taking the class brings that back, so that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's also a good time. I put my whole show up on the racks like a car and did an oil change and changed the spark plugs and changed the gas and fixed little things that had gotten a little flabby and a little saggy and and Mm -hmm. not as productive. That's that's what I did the first month of the pandemic. Like, all right, well, I got a chance. I got two keynotes, and I got two comedy shows. Let's put them up and see what I can make better uh-huh. before I start writing the next one. Yeah, that's great. So if people want to find you and check out your class, check out your podcast, what's the best way for folks to get to you? So you can go to schooloflaughs.com to uh, find out about the podcast, about local classes, a little bit about the online class on that site, uh, masterlaughterclass.com is all about that last course I just talked about for speakers and preachers and trainers and teachers and anybody that speaks. So those two are the best places to go. Feel free to shoot me a direct message on Facebook or friend me if, if you want just to talk about the classes before you get into it or, or just see a preview of it, anything like that. I'm always excited to help people that want to learn and get better because nothing is worse yeah. than a comic who's not funny. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, amen to that. Yeah. <laughs> Rick, it's, I get nerdy like this. I feel like I'm not being funny because I'm nerdy and I'm a little bit of a teacher. But yeah, but yeah, you you got to have some fun as you as you go through life. Yeah, and this podcast is geared towards learning about the the craft anyway and what the business is like. So I I, I bill it as a serious podcast about stand up comedy. So that's the way I like to do it. That's Rick, great. it's been great having you on, and I I just got to say that I really appreciate what you're doing for the comedy community with your podcast and everything that you do with your teaching. And I tell you, your comedy is just spot on. I, I got to do a lot of uh, watching prior to the interview and I just, I, I love the way you, your pacing is and your setups. And I, I feel like any audience would be on your side when you're talking. Hey, thank you very much. I, I, I love doing it. I'm a little around 30 years of doing it. So I, yeah, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, it's, it's a thrill to, to to do comedy. It's fun to do these podcasts too. I'm I'm glad you started this because there can't be too much information about how to get better and and how to improve. And especially right now while we're not connected in the green room, right? having this between your ears is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thanks a lot, Rick. I appreciate it. You bet. Keep it up.